Welcome back to another episode of Trending Thoughts. I'm your host, Tori Smith. This week, we have a special guest, another educator that is in the building, Erica Chavarria. She's a teacher over in Howard County, where I live in Maryland, at Wild Lake High School. She's one of the best Spanish teachers in the country, so I've heard. So I've heard. Erica, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you being on here. Everyone knows that I love teachers. You know, Chanel was a teacher uh, when I was in Baltimore playing with the Ravens at Dogwood Elementary School over in Woodlawn, Maryland. And, you know, I understand how valuable teachers are. And I know I understand how hard y'all work. So <laughs> I appreciate you and, and everything that you're doing. Um, but you were talking off air. You, know, you were actually born in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Tell me about yep. that. Yeah, I um I was fortunate to be born in New Mexico. Um, it's the you know land of enchantment. Doesn't even begin to describe what its beauty is. Um, but I grew up really saturated with um incredible uh you know indigenous native um and New Mexican culture, and it really kind of shaped who I am today. Um, I miss it a lot. I I feel like um. You know, it's it's part of the fabric of my being. There's nothing like the Southwest. Um, it really is just beautiful and spiritual. And it always kind of grounds me and brings me back to um, just my, you know, stability um, and helps me remember uh, just, you know, the beauty of life. And so I miss it a lot. Um, the East Coast is real different. It was it was quite a culture shock to move to the East Coast from from New Mexico, um, I did not adjust well as a child. So I think my parents had to put me in in therapy because I was not adjusting well. Um, it's just a very different environment, very different culture. Um, so yeah, but I love New Mexico. I always rep, rep New Mexico and um, I hope to you know be back as much as I possibly can in the future. What about that was a major struggle? You know, you hit on something talking about moving. I moved a lot. You know, I was talking mm-hmm. with my mom. You know, I believe we moved over 20 times before I was 16 or until I was like 16 or so. So we moved a lot and that was kind of just a part of our life. We learned to adjust and to adapt. And Mm -hmm. so I was always fine. So when transitioning happened, I never really worried about it. It was just like, all right, here we go. You know, you're younger, you you hate it. And then it's like, all right, I'll get over it. I'll be used to it. And Mm -hmm. I actually think that's one of the things that helped strengthen me and being able to deal with adversity but mm. for you to say that's something that you struggle with, that's very real. You know, we're yeah. really living in a time right now where a lot of people are transitioning, whether it's because of a loss of a job or even a new opportunity, right? Not all things are, are negative. Right. Um, what were some things that you did? You said you needed counseling. Why? Mm-hmm. I just remember, um, you know, acting out. Um, I I felt uncomfortable. I didn't feel like I fit in. Um, I didn't understand the, just the, the East coast, like something about the East coast culture, the, the, my surroundings were different, just the physical environment. You know, I was used to desert and cactus and, (laughs) you know, adobe and stucco houses and the food and the, the people and the, like, there was such a spiritual sense in New Mexico of, um, you know, the, the relationship with the earth and, you know, my teachers all spoke Spanish and I, I just, um, you know, I, when I moved here, um, I, I, I was lost. I mean, I was, it was so shocking. Um, even like the weather, you know, even the view, like my backyard was a desert. And then in the distance were the Sandia mountains. 
Um, and so you you just grow up like feeling this connection with the earth and you move to the East Coast and there's none of that. Um, and I remember, <laughs> you know, I remember even the weather like in New Mexico, I remember it would um, it would snow and by noon it was like 80 and we could go to the pool. Uh, so like the weather was completely crazy out there and here just like the bitter cold winters. Um, I just didn't, I was finding it difficult to adjust at school with friends. Um, I just, it was very hard. And I, I had such a core group of family and friends in New Mexico um, that moving here, um, you know, you, I grew up for surrounded by family. My parents were both um, in, you know, education. My mom was a professor. My dad at the time was as well. And so, um, you know, we had, I had my parents, educator friends, um, just this whole group of family and support that was missing here. Um, and so I, I was acting out, I was angry, I was, um, you know, crying, I, I was a mess. Um, and I, I just remember feeling completely out of place and it was traumatic. It was a traumatic experience. And I, and so I understand when students are um, transferred from different schools to my classroom and they feel completely out of place. I have a a student right now who's from Texas who just moved and she is really finding it. Um, I mean, she's adjusting pretty well, but she is definitely experiencing some culture shock and some, you know, difficult, uh, you know, obstacles. And, and uh, you know, she's vo luckily she's voicing it with me, but I can only imagine, you know, for you, I think there's something to be said about stability. And I think like ultimately your story proves that, it, you know, you grew stronger from having to ad adapt and adjust quickly. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of the problems that I see in the school system, particularly is, and particularly in, um, you know, in schools like in Baltimore or Detroit or Chicago is that you have these teachers that are coming from teacher prep programs that are like six weeks long, uh, like Teach for America, and they are thrown into these schools and then, um, leave within a year. And so the students never feel a stability or that they're about that their teachers want to stay with them. Right. And so um, there's this lack that lack of stability really has an impact on children's, you know, emotions and their psychology and their, you know, their, their, it, it's traumatic. It can be really traumatic. So I'm, I'm really, you know, thank you for sharing that with me. And I'm glad that, you know, ultimately it made you stronger for sure. For sure. Um, and it also aided in, you know, when you talk about like I talk about all the time, my definition of success is simply stability. Um, no knowing, uh, knowing where you're gonna live, knowing that you're gonna have a roof over your head, knowing that you're gonna eat. You know, that's a big deal to me. And again, I say it all the time, everyone's capable of that from Oprah Winfrey to the janitor of my school. So yep. I'm for sure grateful for those experiences. It made me who I am. Mm -hmm. But when I talk about stability in Maryland, people talk about Howard County. <laughs> as one of the greatest counties to live in and that's where your family decided to settle down and you went to wild mm -hmm. lake high school i have a lot of friends that went to that high school so i have a lot of respect and love for it um after i used to joke on them all the time now i actually live in this county so i can't <laughs> i can't laugh and joke anymore <laughs> they were right i was a hater um and so you know you actually teach at the school that you went to um, i do yeah. how's that experience and you know obviously uh, you ended up adapting and loved it so much that you stayed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it it didn't quite work that way. Um, but, <laughs> um, you know, I it's funny because, um, yeah, there is something to be said about Howard County. My parents moved to Howard County specifically when they were searching to come back to the to the East Coast because um, they were originally from the East Coast. 
Um, but they wanted, they moved to Columbia, Maryland, Columbia within Howard County specifically because of its reputation as a planned community, um, you know, by Jim Rouse. Uh, it was supposed to be a community that was built specifically and intentionally around being culturally, ethnically, religiously, socioeconomically diverse. And my parents wanted to give me that. Um, and so, you know, me, my brother and I. And so um, they chose Columbia specifically and Wild Lake High School specifically because Wild Lake was the most, at that time, truly diverse. Now, when people say diverse, really what they're saying is majority black and brown. Um, you know, but back in the day, it was it, Wild Lake was a little bit more, um, you know, truly like a complete diverse demographic. Um, and my parents wanted me to experience that. And so they moved to Columbia specifically. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, I, there were many parts of Wild Lake that I loved, um, that I thrived as a student. Um, the, the subject matters that drew me in um, where I could feel safe and be myself and feel like I had a voice. Um, I loved my, I love, I was in choir, so I was in the fine arts and madrigals. Um, I was an athlete, so I, you know, I played, I was a gymnast for a while, which was not at the school, but kept me, kept me, you know, motivated and kept me grounded. Um, I played baseball, um, and softball for a while. Um, but my, you know, I remember my specific classes that kept me motivated and that was my Spanish class. Cause I, you know, already, um, you know, my, that was part of my, my world. Um, but also, uh, you know, choir, fine arts, um, and some, you know, several other classes that I felt like I, I loved. Um, but I was not a, uh, a very good student in terms of um, my attendance. I skipped a lot of school. I uh, didn't, I didn't connect to the curriculum um, in a lot of ways. And I was always skipping school um, and getting in trouble and getting suspended and getting, you know, all sorts of problems. Um, and so I, what, it was funny because when I left um, Wild Lake, when I graduated from Wild Lake, I think at the time my principal said that the only reason I graduated is because he never wanted to see me back. Um, part of that I forgot to mention was also because my freshman year of high school, um, and actually this is a really important point, my freshman year of high school, the principal at the time was trying to pass some policies in the school where only the students in GT and honors classes would be able to take uh, specific schedules revolving around fine arts. And there were a group of us that knew that that would, that would negatively impact black and brown students because of no fault of black and brown students at all. Typically they're tracked into lower level classes because of, you know, bias and racism starting from pre-K and labeling of kids as discipline problems. And then they're tracked into these lower level classes. Um, but ultimately, the principal at the time was trying to make it so that only kids in GT and honors classes would be able to take fine arts. And a whole group of us actually came together and organized walkouts and sit-ins. And we caused all sorts of, you know, rebellious activity around the school. Um, I was actually, like, dragged into the principal's office um, and reprimanded and kept from calling my parents all day. And I, I ended up having to file a, uh, a lawsuit and the ACLU backed my case and we won. Um, and it, what the case was is that it set precedent that a student's First Amendment rights supersede school rules and school policy. And so we kind of set that precedent. And so I think it wasn't necessarily just the fact that I skipped school all the time. It was the fact that the principal um, did not particularly like me <laughs> for my, you know, my organizing, my student activism and organizing. Um, but there were several teachers in the building that really uplifted the students who were doing what they thought was right. And I wanted to 
I want to be that teacher, right? Like I strive to be the teacher that supports students in any endeavor that they have, especially when they're asserting their power, um, because our youth are powerful. And I think that a lot of people forget that they, they don't view youth as intelligent, powerful human beings, but they are. Um, and so, you know, I left Wild Lake thinking like, I'm never coming back here. My exchange with the principal on the stage, graduation stage was not pleasant um, as I was getting my diploma. Um, but, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, ironically, I ended up back in the same building um, because I believe that I want to give students the best experience possible that I didn't receive. Um, and so, so it, that's it, why all, it all makes sense. It <laughs> all makes sense. This is all stuff I'm learning right now on this podcast, Trending Thoughts, as we listen about all of this. I had no clue because we met informally through a tweet. Yes. And then we met in a COVID world on Zoom. Yep. <laughs> so I think it's awesome that, you know, you've been a fighter since day one, you know, being a, a youngster and being a leader. And so... I should not be surprised by the call that we were on to talk about removing school resource officers from school. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that you were a person that got in trouble or was suspended a few times. Mm -hmm. And again, it makes more sense as I listen to you, why you were fighting for it, because you are the perfect example of why it's important to me. Because just because an individual may get in trouble or they may get labeled as troublesome by certain leaders, it doesn't mean that they are or that's their right. end goal, right? And I believe exactly. in the best in everyone. And so that's why we're here today, you know, to talk about school resource officers. Because sometimes I'll tweet something mm -hmm. and then I'll debate about it for a little bit and then just go on about my business. <laughs> or I'll be on Instagram <laughs> and I'll be in my comments and I'll go back and forth. But then those are only words. So I like to bring life to conversations and really be able to digest and to dive in to a particular subject. So when you talk about school resource officers being in school, we're talking about the police, the police yes. that are actually in schools. Correct. I'd like to give you the floor first to share why you believe that they shouldn't be in schools. Well, first of all, thank you. Um, thank you for, you know, tweeting what you did in the first place um, and responding to my tweet back to you. Um, you know, I, I saw I was informed pretty quickly that you had retweeted a article posted about police and schools. Um, and then I responded to you and you wrote back, let me know what's going on in Howard County. And then, you know, ultimately we ended up on this, you know, this Zoom call having that that discussion around police officers in schools. And so, um, you know, thank you for not being afraid um, and for doing, you know, the work that you're doing and for even having me here to talk about this um, because it's so important. Um, so I, I just wanted to extend that thanks to you. And, um, you know, I, I was I was honored to be, you know, in that session today with you. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we forget I think as adults, what it was like to be kids. And we forget that there are times in our life when we're young where we are learning how to be adults and how to handle conflicts and how to, you know, handle um, our emotions and that we make mistakes. There is not a single adult that can say with a honest heart, or maybe there are a few, but I don't relate to them whatsoever. 
um, that they never made a mistake in their life. Right. And that if they did make a mistake, that their mistake as a kid warranted a criminal record. Right. We we know that students do things because they are developmentally appropriate behaviors. When we talk about discipline, discipline literally means to learn. It doesn't mean to punish. And so what we have done by by putting police in schools and there's a historical context to this, too, that I think is very important. If you look at when when the beginnings of police in schools started and it really was to suppress black and brown student uprisings in the civil rights era. Um, and so, you know, historically, police have been put in schools specifically to oppress and to suppress black and brown students, youth and their power. Right. And their voice and to and to be there to patrol and to be there to enforce the law and to criminalize historically. Um, but, you know, the second kind of wave of the police in schools, um, you know, originally this justification was to prevent school shootings. But what we know is that what has happened is that police are in school are cops. They are in and particularly in Howard County, they are Howard County Police Department officers. They have a gun, they have a badge and they are required to enforce the law. And so what we are doing is we are criminalizing kids before they even walk into the school building, just for the mere fact that we have police in schools, not to mention the fact that our discipline policies and our discipline codes are have used criminalizing language. And that was also a shift starting with the war on drugs, the war on crime, all of that zero tolerance, um, criminalizing language like three strikes law. Um, all of that type of language of criminality is now embedded in our student codes of conduct. And so you have, you know, a little kid takes a, and this has actually happened, a five-year-old, you know, sees a piece of candy on their teacher's desk and thinks it looks yummy and takes the candy off the desk is now charged with robbery, right? Kids get into a fight in the hallway um, because that's what kids do. They get into fights and they, now it's assault and battery. Um, you know, kids are are loud or something happens. There's a, you know, a scuffle in the hallway and now it's disrupting the peace. Um, there's that we have criminalized the language and we are also literally criminalizing kids by putting police in school who are now arresting and charging kids for mistakes that they are making. And it's not to justify that the kids are, you know, it's not to say that what the kids do is OK. But what we should be doing as educators in a school building, in a place of learning is teaching and guiding students on how to handle their mistakes, how to recover from their mistakes, how to repair the harm that they have done by their mistakes. And instead, what we're doing is we are criminalizing kids at young ages and giving them records that will affect their entire trajectory through life. And so adults forget that, you know, those folks who are saying, you know, they deserve to pay for their crimes. Well, did you, you know, do they, maybe they should take a step back and remember when they were a kid and how many mistakes they made. And if they think they deserved a criminal record at 14 years old. Right. And, and hopefully the answer would be no. Um, and for those who say the answer would be yes, I feel bad for them. Um, because that's not doing what we should be doing by guiding our kids and, and teaching them about conflict management, you know, um, peer mediation, um, because those are the skills that we want students to be able to take into the real world. We don't want students to go into the real world and not be able to handle a conflict, right? And not be able to learn from their mistakes and to move on and have second chances. People deserve check second chances and third chances. And fourth, we're we're evolving and we're learning human beings. Especially right? kids, right? right? I mean, we're course. talking about this and, you know, there are SROs in schools that are arresting 12, 13-year-old 
young men and women for yep. that matter. Right. And, yes. you know, we live in an era right now in 2020 where people are starting to learn a little bit more and become more aware of some of the things that you mentioned. And so you have to understand that a person's first interaction with law enforcement should not be in school. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't be Absolutely. seeing your your classmate in a fight being roughed up and handcuffed in school. Right. You know, I just think I just go and think back just like myself personally. You know, I was in two fights in high school, like around school time. Uh, excuse me, two fights. One was in middle school and one was in high school. Um, the one in middle school, I was in class. I was in the cafeteria line. And I went to go get me a fork. I walked by the guy. He thought I was cutting him. I was really just going back to get my fork. He called me the N-word and pushed me. I beat him up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of that, it goes from self-defense, right? right. He, he pushed me, you know, and I'm not going to lie. Like, I, 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 I'll put it on him, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that turns into assault. Right. From me. So as a 13-year-old, I could have been charged with assault present day. Exactly. And understanding that, it's like, it's crazy to me. You know, I also had a, a fight in high school. It wasn't at school, but it was at a bus stop, which is technically school grounds. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, like that, I just look at that now, like, man, that could change everything, you know, depending on how that goes, how it works. Obviously, you know, I tell people, I'm not trying to make excuses for anyone's mistakes. But what I am saying is if a fight happens or you're in an argument or you're upset and you're not listening to the officer or to the principals or to anyone because you're upset, an individual shouldn't be charged for that. Like these are things that are, that my parents, you know, my grandparents, like the principals were the disciplinarians. They were able to handle these things. Right. And so to me, it just doesn't make any sense to put law enforcement in a place where, you know, they aren't equipped to do it. You know, and I hear people parading and being really excited about Maryland. The officers, the SROs receive 40 hours of training. Okay. Yeah. That's (laughs) it. Like, what's that supposed to mean? That individual still has the power. Exactly. To throw a child into the system, depending on how they seem fit. And I do want to be fair. There are some SROs that are very committed to their school and to their kids and to their teachers and everyone loves them. But the reality of it is they still have a job to do. Exactly. So if they see a fight, it's still their duty to report what they see, which can lead to a child being harmed. Now, I'm sure people are like, oh, well, Miss So-and-so. Or Mr. So-and-so doesn't allow it to happen all the time. I'm sure that does exist. But what about the time that he does allow it to happen and it was just a fight, right? It just doesn't right. make any sense to me um, to throw people into it. And another argument that people make for having it is about safety. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to let you have the floor on this again when it comes to safety. But before I let you have it, there's a statistic And I talked about this statistic with my wife. You know, it's hard for her to kind of accept because she's like, man, every child matters. And I'm like, you're absolutely right. 
Every child mm-hmm. matters. Every life matters. But we like to use metrics and numbers to show why and and if certain things are working, right? Mm-hmm. So if we understand our biggest fear when we talk about safety as parents, which some people don't even know what it means to have their child being safe at school. Like, what does that mean? Like, what are you afraid of? Is it fights, bullying? Um, is it school shootings? Which is probably the number one thing that people think of, right? Right. Um, but school shootings, officers, you know, you feel like you should be safer with the officers there, but they've only intervened in two yep. out of 200 yep. school shootings. Now, those two are very special. So I want to be very clear that what they did is heroic and it was very, it was worth it. But when you talk mm-hmm. about statistics and worth and value, 1% of the time, officers were able to intervene or stop a school shooting. So therefore, by believing that officers being in the school is making your school safer, particularly you know when it comes to school shooting, one percent isn't sitting too pretty right that's a failure rate actually absolutely and you know that's tough for some people to digest and again i want to be very sensitive you know when it comes to talking about that number because like man like that one percent yes it saves some lives for sure Mm -hmm. but there are other things and other ways that we can try to do to get on the front end so what what do you tell someone who believes that being having an officer in his school because the majority of the time when people feel that way, it's at schools that don't really have issues anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so what would you say yeah, to also, them? Also <laughs> right. So what would you say to them? Like, my school is safer because this SRO is in my school. Right. Uh, there's so much to digest here. Um, you know, typically the folks that believe that having a cop in school is uh, equates to safety are people who have not had negative experiences with police, uh, in, you know, in their, in their life. Right. Um, and also, you know, having cops in school is the only narrative that people really know when it comes to, uh, you know, school shootings, because that's what the reaction has been from the country. There has always been a justification for having cops in schools because of school shootings. Um, but, you know, again, looking at the, at the statistics, um, not only has it only been two out of all of the school shootings in the history of school shootings where the police in school actually intervened, but in Parkland, which is, you know, arguably by some, one of the most devastating, they're all devastating, correct, but Parkland caused a huge uproar, right? And um, the police ran out of the building at Parkland. They actually ran away. Um, and it, and there have been, there have been um, you know, video clippings of, uh, there was one a couple years ago, I think, of actually not too long ago, um, of a student who brought a gun into school. And the person who actually was able to de-escalate the situation was a teacher who had a relationship with that student and literally embraced the student and was able to get the gun away from the student. It was not the cop that intervened. <laughs> That's Keen I was up in Oregon. He was a yeah. co- he was a coach in San Francisco when I was with the 49ers. Oh, there you go. So, you know, so that that that's you know, that's a crazy coincidence that that you know that yeah. person. But, <laughs> it's crazy. Um, yeah, for real. But that's so. So, yeah, I mean, typically the folks who who view police as safe um, are, are not, you know, the ones that are impacted by what, you know, by the by impacted negatively by police. 
Um, and historically, we know that there's the, the one of the things we haven't touched on yet is the disproportionality of arrests um, and the disproportionality of students being coming into contact with the with the with law enforcement and the criminal justice system in schools. And by far and large, black and brown students are um, arrested and criminalized at rates far superior to their to their white peers for the same issues, by the way. Um, so it's that you cannot argue that black students are, there's always an argument I hear that black students are just worse behaved <laughs> students. And that is absolutely untrue. Um, and so what we see is that the police are disproportionately arresting and criminalizing black students, charging black students, searching black students, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, I've had several students that have been speaking publicly who have attested to that fact that a lot of times, you know, students will walk into school and there's a smell of marijuana and the assumption automatically from the cop is that it's a black student when in fact it's a white student and the white student will never get searched, the black students do. Um, and so, you know, what I would say to, again, to and you say that- This is something that you've seen in your school? Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, absolutely. I, I mean, there there's no question that that happens. Um, and, you know, I, you know, the, the, the idea, again, of bad cop, good cop, right? Um, I do want to say that the police officer in my building right now, I actually really like him as a human being. Um, and I think, you know, in, an, in, a, in another world, in another setting, we could we could be friends. I, I really respect him. I think he's a good person. But ultimately, at, at the end of the day, um, whether or not he's a good person or not doesn't matter because he is required to enforce the law. And when he doesn't enforce the law or when any police officer in school doesn't enforce the law, which is what they are required to do, they will be reprimanded. They will get in trouble um, because that's they're, they're, that technically means that they're not doing their job. They're not doing what they are there to do. And unfortunately, it's it, and it's incredibly unfortunate because, you know, we we do have the ability to de-escalate situations and handle situations that does not that should not and should not ever require an arrest or a charge. Um, and so this idea of like, you know, my cop is a great guy and he has a good he's a good role model. Um, you know, we have we we should be investing money in other folks who do not have the ability to arrest handcuffed and charge kids who and and walk around with guns um, that could be role models for our students. Um, and so that that to me is not enough of a justification to keep police in schools. And again, when you're asking about safety, we typically always only hear the voices of those who are the majority. Right. And so when will it matter? You know, when are we going to value what black and brown students have to say about their view of safety? Because our black and brown students that you speak to um, do not feel safer with police in schools. They actually feel less safe with police at schools. And all the data backs that up. Right. When you look at the disproportionality, when you look at the look at what's going on in our country. And has been forever, but you know now we have cell phones to record it. You know we had to watch a man being, you know, kneeled in the neck and killed on TV. You know, killed in front of the world to see. And these are the images, and this is the experience that our black and brown students have. Um, and so even just the sight of a police officer is traumatizing to so many students. And and then when does learning happen, right? And and so, you know, when we think about what safety means and we look, you know, even just besides the data that clearly proves that police having a cop in school does not equate to safety from a school shooting. Um, when we look at safety, we need to be valuing the voices that are typically marginalized and never heard. Right. 
Um, it's, it's always the majority, the white parents, the white students, that their voices are the ones that, that reign supreme, especially when it comes to politics, because people want votes. And so you're going to appease your voter base. Um, but when we, when we ask black and brown students, um, you know, how they feel about having cops in schools, um, many, many, many times you will hear them say, uh, I do not feel safer with a police officer in school. We have undocumented students in our schools that are terrified when they see it is traumatic for them to see a cop wandering the hallways, um, you know, with their with their with their status uh, the way it is. And so when we look at safety, what does that really mean? Um, and, what, and, and I view safety as so much more. Um, and our students view safety as so much more, you know, the student today who was talking was describing that when she needs to feel safe or when she needs to go to somebody, she goes to the trusted relationships of the, the teachers in the building that she has trusted relationships with. And that is where we should be focusing our resources, our money. We should be focusing our resources and money on those um, those people that can build trusting relationships, guidance counselors, hiring more staff so that teachers don't have 35 kids in a room. Right hiring restorative practice coordinators, we're hiring, um, making sure that we are staffed with healing-centered practices, culturally responsive pedagogy, anti-racist uh, work in the buildings, right? Making sure that our students are not facing additional racist behavior by our staff, right? That they, that they are treated fairly in their classrooms, that their voices are valued and heard. Those are all things that also equate to safety that we don't think of as safety, right? We think of so many people just assume a cop means safety, but that is not what safety means um, to many, many people. At all. And that's something that, again, their perspective isn't heard enough. You know, we're both mm -hmm. Howard County residents. And to know that, again, a county that prides itself on diversity, right? Right. So it says. And 86% of the students arrested are students are of color. Yep. You know, that's a very alarming stat in an area where... You know, it, it it prides itself on diversity, but clearly there are certain areas where that is simply not the case in this right. county. And, you know, it's targeted. There there aren't SROs in every school. Correct. You know, they're in specific schools. That doesn't mean that fights aren't happening in every school. We all know if, if a person hasn't seen there's fights in Catholic schools and private schools. The fights happen, Absolutely. right? They it's happen. it's, it's teenage, it's teen it's teenage <laughs> behavior. You know, I'm right. not saying it's acceptable and I'm not saying go out there and brawl and duke it up. That is not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is fights happen and, yep. you know, this bad decisions are made all of the time and they shouldn't be punished and thrown into our vicious criminal justice system. You know, when I think about exactly. what it means to treat these children like adults when it comes to policing. It just, I just think of all the wrongs and ills that exist in our system for adults right, right. now as we Absolutely. speak. Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow because you, know, you said anti-racist. I was reading how to be an anti-racist and Kendi was talking about how when you know certain policies or systems exist, AKA SROs in school. Mm -hmm. And you're continuing to aid in something that we all can acknowledge is a problem. Right. Black men, mm -hmm. young men and women being victims of police violence or just simply being thrown into the system. It's not even all about abuse. It's just simply being put into the system. That's an issue. We know right. it's an issue. Yep. Yet we're justifying our safety 
but we don't have any numbers that show that our students are any more safe with officers in the building. That's crazy to me. Exactly. And not only are they not, we, we know that, that the end result of police and school um, is has what has led to the school to prison pipeline. I mean, we are funneling students in. It, it, it's a arm of mass incarceration, right? And so we're funneling students into a pipeline to prison. Um, and it's you know that is what that is what we know. We know we don't need any more. The data is clear. It has been clear um, since the beginning. We know what police and school has done. Um, and, and, and you're right. Kendi does talk about, you know, the, the, if we're upholding a system of white supremacy, um, you know, we're continuing in a racist cycle. Right. And so if we know that our policies and practices, if we're claiming to be, you know, Howard County, um, I'm glad to see there, there be more talks, uh, around anti-racism work and, you know, pushing, but that means that we need to be investing and putting our, our, our actions where our mouth is. Right. And saying, if we are truly, dedicated to equity, to um, anti-racism work, then we need to be we need to be courageous in eliminating the policies and practices that uphold white supremacy and that oppress and harm our black and brown students. And having police in school is one of those things that does just that. And, you know, uh, we need to take a strong stance. We need to be courageous. This is the, the momentum is growing across the country. People know we it is there is no we don't need to look and have any more conversations you know in you know everyone's like well we just need more data we need more no we know what the data is we've had the conversations we've had the town halls we've had everything we need to have and according to maryland law um you know you had mentioned about you know some schools don't have police right according to maryland law according to the safe to learn act you can either have a, a, an SRO in school every day, or you can have an adequate coverage plan. Um, and so the schools that don't have police officers every day have adequate coverage plans, meaning that if there is an emergency or there is something that warrants a police officer to be at the school, there is a plan put in place where an officer is able to arrive immediately. And so it is possible. It's not like this is an impossibility. It is not an impossible world to imagine that you have a school so you know that that there are millions of children that go to schools where there are cops in every school but no counselors or no nurses that is unacceptable um we you know it is it is unacceptable that we have students that are that are living in that are facing going to school every day where their emotional and physical needs are not met, but there is a police officer ready to enforce the law on them and criminalize them it's not okay it's not and that was the most alarming <laughs> statistic to me. Because, again, Maryland is a place, and again, we live, and you are a teacher yep. in a place that everyone acknowledges as one of the better public school systems in America. And the state of Maryland as a whole, the, everyone doesn't have access to, like, the state isn't even meeting the benchmarks for counselor to student ratio, psychiatrist to student ratio. I mean, like those things are important. So we're trying to, I feel like we know the old way doesn't work. Like at some point we had to make a decision to change things up, get out in front, be bold, think differently and try to help kids on the front end and to prevent them from funneling into the system early because there are so many people like yourself who've made decisions in school 
that, you know, teachers may or may not like. I've been suspended before. So I'm an example of that as well. But I I was never charged with anything, but I've been suspended from school. So if that's the label that I'm going to have, but Mm -hmm. I can turn out to be a very mature young man or woman, like, what are we doing? Right. You know, what are we doing? We know the old way isn't working. We just know exactly. it isn't. And there, and, and, and that's something that is for me, I'm sh- struggling. You know, this is my vent session right now with the tables of time. I appreciate it. You know, like, <laughs> like seriously, when you're talking to someone and you're like, this is wrong. Like these kids are being charged. It's wrong. And the first thing that comes out their mouth is, well, they shouldn't be fighting. So you've never heard of a fight as an adult when you were younger? Right. You Have you ever been in a fight? <laughs> so you should have went to jail? You right. know, it should have <laughs> impacted your record? You know, and, and when you talk about safety as a whole, the decision makers and people that are in that position, most of them, and I'm saying most, not all, mm-hmm. most of them can't relate to the challenges that we're talking about. It doesn't impact their kids directly. All right. they can see is the safety aspect of having an officer present and how it makes them feel that they're putting their kid in the best situation possible for their safety, which right. I can respect as a mm-hmm. parent feeling like you're putting your child in the best situation. But as right. we know, and the numbers show, that's not the truth. Exactly. Um, you know, you're hitting on so many, so many important points. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I think it's so hard for, so I, I'm a, I'm a, a, an advocate and, uh, you know, I've been trained in restorative justice, um, practices, and it's something that I, I strive to be as a, a restorative educator, um, you know, within my own classroom, but also I, I fight for restorative justice to be implemented with fidelity the way it should be um, in schools, right? Um, and in communities. But we live in such a punitive society, right? We we live in this law and order state where you do the crime, you serve the time, right? Like we, that is this society through and through. It is in the fabric of this society. And so it's super hard for people, even, even you know, black and brown folks to imagine a world that is not punitive. Um, it's not like this all across the world, by the way. Um, and, and, and in our most, you know, indigenous um, traditions, it, it is not, societies are not based on punitive actions, right? But we live in this punitive world of crime and punishment and law and order. And so this idea of, you know, it's so saturated in our head that, you know, when someone does something wrong, it's, you know, they're a bad person and they deserve punishment and they deserve to go to jail. And, uh, you know, because we don't, that's the world we live in. And so when you think about like, how do we shift the mindset of, and and our culture, it's like really this restorative justice is really like a culture and a mindset shift into thinking about about relationships in a different way, like focusing on building relationships with one another, understanding one another. And then when I cause harm to you, if I am in relationship with you, I probably care more about about mending that harm 
and restoring the relationship that I have with you before and repairing the harm that I have caused and then being reintegrated into a community. And that is an indigenous, uh, a very indigenous tradition and practice, right? Where, where harm is seen as, or where some, a wrongdoing is seen as harm to a community, a harm to a relationship, not uh, uh, you're a bad person. You did a, you did a crime. You deserve to go to jail, right? Because that doesn't, that doesn't really, that doesn't solve anything. That's why we have recidivism rates the way they are. That's why when you suspend a kid and you throw them out of the school building and they come back, they're mo- they're two times more likely to be suspended again and then eventually end up in jail if you've been suspended one time because you're not addressing the the harm that has been done. Most times someone does a crime and they never even face the person that they have harmed. They're told by a judge you are now going to or a jury, you know, you're now going to jail for 10 years and the per- the victim or, you know, even anyone who is involved is never probably never even gets what they actually want to see as justice. So we have this really skewed idea of what justice is, um, what safety means. And we, we are, we're so tied to this punitive mindset. It's really quite frightening. And it doesn't have to be that way. We can live in a society and in a world where we operate in a different way. We can live in a society where you know, police are not the first people called to the scene in a in a in a dispute in a neighborhood, but community folks who are from the community, by the community, who are trained in how to de-escalate situations, who are respected in the community, who can make a difference. Right? We we're doing things wrong. Um, everything is wrong, and we you know we we have a responsibility to our young people, especially right now, to to lit to do good by them, and and to uplift their voices and to allow their voices to be heard. And if we have students that are disproportionately affected by police in school, and they are saying that we do not feel safe and we are sick and tired of being criminalized for existing, then we need to listen to that. Yeah, and that's real. And I think, you know, I agree with everything you said, especially as you talked into um, bringing in other people that are professionals to help people in the mm-hmm. way they need to be helped. You know, I've talked about that with Aaron Maben a lot on the podcast mm-hmm. and, you know, just in, in, in person as a friend about, what can we do to try to help aid in that? You know, communities are hurting. And I try to be clear, you know, and the both of us, I can speak for the both of us on this. You know, police have a place in society. Their place just isn't always the first <laughs> to be the first to the scene. Every scene doesn't mm-hmm. require them, you know. And, right. and, and that to me is where some people really struggle because there's someone that's going to listen to this. And they're going to feel like, well, if you feel this way about police officers in school, don't call them when there's a school shooting. How do you get that <laughs> from the message? The message said they don't need to be involved right away. If a kid mm-hmm. comes to school and he has a gun, call the cops. <laughs> right? Like, right. The, like there's a time and a place for them to be there, but it isn't every single day. Like I don't right. to me, I don't understand why it's so hard. Like people literally feel like it's an attack. I get DMs all the time from people saying like why are you talking about police and you're gonna call them if something is wrong like <laughs> i i didn't think it was uh i don't know why i'm being judged for wanting people to be held accountable for their actions exactly and wanting people to be where they belong or police mm-hmm. in areas where they should be not just right. throwing people into a system but right. it seems like to me we need to set a date to come back for that conversation, because I'd love to hear what for you sure. think about that. 
<laughs> but, I have thoughts on that too. <laughs> but They're sure. probably a little more radical than yours. <laughs> but sure, I, um, I love to hear. Yeah. But before I let you go, the people need to know where can they reach out to you or follow you and see what you have going on. Oh wow. Um, well, uh, there are several uh, organizations that I'm actively involved in that they can definitely find me. Um, uh, so there's several ways. Um, I am on the uh, the board of an organization called the um, Anti-Racist Education Alliance. Um, we are an organization that has been involved in the police free schools movement here in Howard County and uh, in the state. So reaching out to there, they have a we have a Facebook page. Um, I would also, um, you know, I'm on Facebook. I don't really accept people I don't know, but um, I think, you know, if someone wants to get in contact with me, um, you know, sending me a message on Facebook, I would be happy to respond. Um, but uh, definitely the anti-racist education. You have alliance. a really cool organiza organization too, right? I do. I do. Um, I, I actually founded uh, an organization called Columbia Community Care. Um, which is an organization that I founded, right? Actually, it was just a Facebook group. It started off as 40 people because um, we were anticipating the close of schools. I know my students and my families and my community. I knew that the COVID was going to exacerbate the hardships that they already face in our society. And so I set up a Facebook page and was like, hey, anybody want to help You know, provide donations and groceries to our families that are going to be in need with this COVID crisis? And it somehow organically and authentically grew to over 6,000 members on our Facebook page. We have sites all across the county that we give out uh you know food we distribute food and household items and donations um we do home deliveries for folks who are in need um who do not have transportation who do not want to leave their homes for whatever reason so we have we have uh, grown into an incredibly um you know productive organization doing really good work in the county and, and none of it would be you know possible without the volunteers and the donors and everybody who, who works, you know, their, their hearts out every day to support our families and our community. And so I can also be reached at Columbia community care at gmail.com. Um, we, uh, you know, especially if anyone is in need and needs a donation, needs groceries, whatever they need. So uh, I am really proud of that, that organization. And uh, we're always looking for help and volunteers and folks who want to lend a hand to support our, our neighbors. So uh, we appreciate we you. <laughs> you know, real life superhero out here. You know, I feel like all teachers and educators are superheroes because of what y'all do. The time that you spend your own personal money and time and efforts that you put in, as we just heard, you know, all these extra things you're doing. Ultimately, you're doing them for your students, um, you know, for your sure, yeah. for a better future for them. And mm -hmm. forget a better future, a better present, <laughs> a better life right <laughs> true, now for them. So, yeah, you know, I appreciate you. everything that you're doing and hope to have you back on here soon. I would love to be back. Thank you so much for having me. It was, <laughs> it was a pleasure. Peace. <laughs>